good to be in the Lord's house today and to be able to open up His Word and to have something to study and to learn from, something in which we can know God, know His character, know His will, know His heart, and then um, seek ourselves to, to display that to others as we learn and grow and as we are obedient and submissive to His Word. This morning, I'd like to focus our time um, in verses 11 through 14. We're going to, you guys were, if you were here the last few weeks, we spent a couple of weeks in verses 1 through 10, and I was actually going to finish that this week, and I just decided that I felt like we covered that pretty thoroughly, and so I wanted to just move on to verse 11. Maybe I'll make a few comments in, in reference to the to the first 10 verses, but primarily we're going to focus on verses 11 through 14 this morning. And if you'll remember, we're talking about the comparison between the Old Covenant, which we find in the Old Testament, also known as the Mosaic Covenant or a covenant of works, um, and the New Covenant, which is found in the, in the New Testament, which is a covenant of grace. Um, one, it's built upon the things that we do and accomplish to, to enter into favor with God. And both of them um, are meant to bring about fellowship with God. So one, we work towards fellowship with God and we fail miserably to accomplishing it. And the other, which is the covenant of grace or the new covenant that God makes with mankind, is a covenant that Christ works and completes all of the things necessary through which we can enter into God's presence and have, and have fellowship with him again. If we can always keep in mind, going back even to the Garden of Eden when God created mankind, he created us to have fellowship with him. And he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve daily, fellowshipping with them, communing with them. And it wasn't until sin entered into the picture that man was no longer in harmony with God. A man no longer had fellowship with God. As a matter of fact, the, the picture painted for us in Genesis chapter number 3 is at the moment where sin enters into the world, mankind is afraid of being in the presence of God. And they're fearful of God's presence because now his holiness becomes a source of condemnation to them, a source of damnation to them. He tells them, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And when they eat of that tree, immediately they realize that condemnation has been passed down to them and they're no longer allowed to, to um, be in God's presence. And the picture even expands further where they're kicked out of the garden completely and angels are placed with fiery swords are placed at the, at the front of the garden so that they cannot re-enter. And then there's, sacrifice, there's a sacrificial system that's put into place. And that sacrificial system is a... Um, a means, a temporary means by which mankind is able to enter into God's presence for brief stints to make sacrifices and to restore um, some sense of harmony with God, totally different from what they had in the garden and what we have um, in Christ, but they were able to restore some sense of harmony with God through that sacrificial system. And it was all, all meant to point us to ultimately the new covenant, which was a sacrificial system based upon Christ's sacrifice for us. I want to read these verses and then um, just try to unfold this for us this morning. So if you'll join me, we'll begin in verse number 11. The Bible says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not made by, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Please join me in prayer. And Father, we do thank you this morning for the privilege that you have given us to come into your house to worship you, to sing praises to you, to 
um, talk about and commune around your word. And we are asking for your grace. We're asking for your mercy, for your favor, for your wisdom this morning to um, clearly understand what your word is saying, uh, to give, we pray and ask that you would give clarity and also give hearing ears and listening ears and receptive hearts. And we pray that through the truth of your word that you would change our lives, you would conform us into the image of your son Jesus Christ in a, in a further way. Um, please be with us, Lord God, in this time together. Help it to be about you and not about us. Help us not to put our preferences or our desires in place of seeing you glorified through your word, seeing you worshiped through your word. Help us to sit and to listen and to enjoy and to experience your presence in our hearts and our minds during this time. Help it to be a completely selfless time. Help it to be a time of humility. Help it to be a time where you are highly exalted and glorified. May your presence be known amongst us today and your power be real. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. We discussed the last two weeks the similarities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, similarities such as parameters and uh, purity, preparation, and process. The last two we did not discuss, but if you read the latter part of verse, um, really verse 6 down to verse number 10, you will see the process of worship and the preparation of worship being similar between the two covenants. And parameters of worship is just the, the means by which we enter into God's presence, similar in both covenants. Okay? Sacrifices had to be made. Ceremonies had to be performed. It was a very, very rigorous process. It was not a simple process. It was a very rigorous process. And, and it's not different from the old covenant to the new covenant. We want to be mindful of that. We really want to make sure that Christ is magnified in all that he's accomplished to make it possible for us to enter into the presence of God. When you read the Old Testament, when you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you see this massive explosion of rules and regulations, and you think to yourself, that is impossible, there's no way that I could keep these things, just remember this, that is not there to show us what, it, what we're supposed to keep it's meant to be there to show us what Jesus Christ kept for us. It is to be an explosion of the glory of Christ that we can see in every way how amazing our God is and what he went through, what he accomplished so that we might enter into the presence of God. Lord, let us not ever take it lightly to enter into the presence of God again when we read all of the requirements and all of the sacrifices fulfilled in Christ so that we can enter into his presence. It would be a holy shame for us to take it lightly that we have an opportunity to enter into God's presence with it being in mind all of the things done to make it possible for us to enter into God's presence. When you think about Jesus Christ hanging on that cross 2,000 years ago, and you think about that whip being placed across his back and that crown of thorns being placed upon his head, and you think about them ripping his beard from his face literally and then spitting upon him and mocking him, and he did all of that so that you and I could enter into the presence of the most holy God of the universe and fellowship with him. Let us never take that lightly. Let us never consider entering into the presence of God, something that we take for granted. It was purchased at a high price. So we see the similarities of these two. We notice in verse number 10, I want to make mention of this, the Bible says at the very end of this that this all will ha happen. All of these Old Testament or Old Covenant regulations will take place until the time of Reformation. This word in the Greek literally means something is straightened out. Something that has been made crooked is now straightened out. So until things are straightened out, until things are made right, all of these Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices are going to be necessary and needful. However, once the time of Reformation comes... Once the time where things are straightened out, where harmony is restored, where fellowship is restored, once that is accomplished, there's no more need for those Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices for the Old Covenant things. It's important to remember that because 
In our culture today, there are religions out there that want to hold on to some of those old covenant ceremonies and sacrifices, thinking that through these things I can now enter into the presence of God. The Lord says when the time of reformation has come, when there is a a straightening of the path, when there is a restoring of things between man and God, there's no more need for these things that were reflective of that. So this is a... Verse 1 through 10 is a picture of the things that are the same. And then it says they're going to conclude with the reformation or the restoration of God's um, fellowship with his people. Verse 11 is where we're we're going to find our uh, beginning of our main text here this morning. This introduces a distinction or differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. You'll notice the first word of verse 11 is the word but which is a contrastive word. It's saying we're changing directions. We're changing thought process. We're going to look at the other side of this picture. So when verse number 1 through 10 describes the similarities between the two covenants, verse number 11 begins with this conjunction saying that now we're going to talk about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. What are the differences between the two? It is important to note that while the structure of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are similar or almost exactly the same, the Old Covenant is built upon earthly, visible, physical elements. Therefore, it cannot ever perfectly represent a real, invisible, spiritual truth. Does that make sense? It's... It's a, because it is physical, God gives us, he calls them parables, he calls them pictures, he calls them um, types, typology. He calls them these things because he gives us these earthly expressions of his own character so that we can see it and understand it in in a limited way. There's only two things that have ever been amongst men that we can look to and know that it is a perfect expression of God And one of those is Jesus Christ, and the other one is is God's Word. Those are the only two things that have ever been given to man that are a perfect expression of God. Everything else that we have is an expression, is a limited, a faulty expression of God. Even you and I are a limited, faulty expression of God. Genesis tells us that we're created in His image, right? We are a limited expression. And as sin entered into the world, more limited. And as each generation goes, we become more and more limited in expressing the glories of God. But we are a expression of God. We are an expression of God. His, um, his, his, his will, His character, those types of things are expressed through His people. But they're flawed because they are physical and they are fallen. Okay? So this is where we we talk about the Old Covenant. It's it's using physical fallen things, earthly things, to express heavenly truths. And therefore, it's not going to be a perfect expression of those truths. So there's going to be some differences. Let me illustrate this for you. A few years ago, my wife and I were in Orlando, Florida at at a Ligonier conference. And we decided to go to the Holy Land experience. Has anybody ever been to the Holy Land experience? In Orlando, Florida. Wow, nobody has been to the Holy Land. That's not, my, 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 my story can be whatever I want it to be now because no one has been there. I just wanted to check that out before I told the story. Don't go home and confirm what I'm saying. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So my next statement was, for those of you who are not familiar, I'll leave that out because none of you are. So the Holy Land experience is an, is an amusement park of sorts in Orlando, Florida, where it has like places that you would go to in the Bible times and, and people, and uh, they had plays and acts there that you could watch, and it would be a reflection of the Bible times. And if you ever look at it on TV, like if you ever see an advertisement of it, you think, wow, this is really an, an amazing place. And you, it really looks, if you kind of compare it to what you see on TV um, describing it and what you see in the Bible, you think this is really an extraordinary place until you get there. Okay, And then when you get there, you realize that you're talking about pillars that are painted gold, and they're made of styrofoam, 
and you see the actors up there and they are trying to act and trying to portray biblical truths and they're not the greatest of actors up there displaying these truths. And you walk around and, and these, these people that they're portraying um, on the uh, TV so that they get you excited to come out, they're cardboard cutouts of people. And you begin to realize that all of this stuff that's meant to express the glories of the Holy Land, it really falls short of expressing the glories of the Holy Land. It doesn't reach the, it doesn't reach the biblical description of the blessings of the Holy Land. This is how we can see the Old, Test, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. From a distance, it looks almost identical. The old is reflecting the new. There are priests. There are tabernacles, temples. There are sacrifices. There is worship. There is representation. There are benefactors. There's purity. There's all of these things in both of these covenants. So from a distance, it seems like it's, it's very, very similar. However, when you take a microscope and you look at each one of the elements that's involved in the old covenant versus the new covenant, what you begin to see is that there are a lot of differences. The differences don't consist in the basic structure of the old covenant versus the new covenant, but the differences are in the elements that are used to accomplish or, or bring about the old covenant versus the new covenant. Now, I want to say this as we get into the message this morning. It's important as we make distinctions between the old covenant and the new covenant that we don't throw out or remove elements from either one of them. And here's what I'm trying to say, if, if, if this makes better sense to you. We live in a culture today who believes that under the new covenant, there is salvation without blood. We live in a culture today that believes under the new covenant, there is forgiveness without sacrifice. We believe that there is access without representation. We believe that there is acceptance without holiness. We believe that there is freedom without payment. Many of these beliefs have led individuals to minimize the work of Christ and have resulted in a false sense of security and that their sins have been forgiven and they have now been set free. This has also resulted in many false converts who have never embraced the priestly work of Christ. They've never embraced the substitutionary work of Christ. They've never embraced the, the sacrifice of Christ. They've never embraced the holiness of heaven. They've never embraced the purity demanded by God to enter into his presence. They've never embraced Jesus Christ at all because they don't really see Jesus Christ as being necessary. They see Jesus Christ as being an addition or possibly a part of their program that they would love to have added to their life or added to their system or added to their salvation, but they do not see Christ as necessary because they do not understand the requirements that are, that are there to enter into God's presence. And they're not saved. They're lost. They're walking through life embracing Jesus Christ as a, as a bonus but not as a necessity. Folks, the, the reality of it is when we embrace what God required in the Old Covenant to, to enter into His presence as being the same requirements in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone, then we get Christ, we gain Christ, we have Christ, and all of those things are satisfied in Him. And by His being in us, all of those things are satisfied in us and for us. The Bible says in 1 John 5 and verse 12, you're familiar with this verse, whoever has the Son has, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. And so the issue is this morning is, is do we have the Son? Do we have Christ? Does Christ live in us? Has Christ saved us? Has Christ satisfied God's Wrath Has Christ satisfied God's requirements to enter into, enter into his presence on our behalf? 
Has he fulfilled those things necessary? So as we enter into verse number 11, we're going to see this morning four things that are superior, and this is the title of the message this morning, the superiority of the new covenant. Four things that are superior in the new covenant that, that are superior in the new covenant over the old covenant. Four, four simple things, and I want us to just think about, meditate on these things, and, and think about how these things help us as we fellowship with God, as we walk with God, as we commune with God, because ultimately that's the goal here. The goal is that we walk with the Lord. That's what He is restoring to us. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, get out of jail free card or get out of hell free card, right? It's not what it's about. It's not, it's not why Jesus came. That, that's, a, that's a confusion, a frustration of modern day evangelicalism that Jesus Christ came to get everybody out of hell. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great benefit of Jesus Christ coming, but Jesus Christ came so that we could have fellowship with the Father. Jesus Christ came to restore us Something within us that was broken because of sin, Jesus Christ has come to restore that so it's not broken anymore. And he fulfilled it and satisfied it on his own merits. So let's look at these four things that um, I think will help us understand his, his superior work and are, are, are found right here in our text. The Bible says in verse number 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, the first thing that he presents in this text is the superiority of the priest. You'll notice the word Christ is used here. It doesn't refer to his earthly name of Jesus, but the word Christ is, is, is more a term of description. It's, a, it's more of a title. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and, and, it, and it means to be anointed or to be chosen. And when we see this word, it's used 500 plus times in the New Testament for the most part, it refers to Jesus Christ. On a few occasions in the gospel, it first refers to people wanting to be Christ or false Christ. But for the most part, when you see this word uh, Christ, you're, you're talking about Jesus Christ. He is the, the anointed one, the chosen one. He has been chosen before the foundation of the world to, to carry out this priestly mission. Okay? He has been chosen. He has been selected. He is superior because he has been chosen and he has been selected. You'll notice as you uh, study through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, you'll notice that the comparison between the old covenant priest and the new covenant priest is a few things, simple things that are important. Number one is the old covenant priest, it always talks about a plurality of priests. It's never as one priest that's going to carry out and accomplish these things forever, but there is a priest who comes on the scene, and that priest dies, and another priest comes on the scene, and he dies, and every year they're making these sacrifices, and there's different priests, and there's different representation, and that representation is always broken and fallen and frail and incapable of really truly establishing communion with God. When it talks about Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture and also in others in this portion of Scripture, he always refers to him as the priest singular. He is the one and only priest. He is the high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the superior priest. He is the one that accomplishes all of the things that God has called or chosen for the priest to accomplish Again, the word means Messiah or anointed one, used 500 plus times in the New Testament, used 18 times in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. And 18 times in the Old Testament, always referring to that which is anointed or chosen by God. Psalm 2 and verse 2 says it this way, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We see that same idea used in the Old Testament on several occasions referring to the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen, which is Jesus Christ. So when we think about Christ, we think about the fact that God has chosen, God has 
predestined, God has predetermined that Jesus Christ would be this priest through which we are restored into fellowship with God. He would be this representative, meaning he would enter into God's presence first on our behalf, right? And that when he enters into God's presence first on our behalf, what happens? The Bible says that when Jesus Christ entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, he put that blood on the mercy seat that was in heaven, right? The blood was his own blood, and he put it on the mercy seat, and it says that the the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, which was a picture of what? It was a picture of, of access. The Lord was, a, was opening up access for all of those who are in Christ to enter into the presence of God. He was opening up fellowship with God. He was restoring fellowship with God again. He was opening up that veil that, that stood between us and God. He was chosen to do this. The Father confirms this in Scripture on several occasions. At Jesus Christ's baptism, the dove descends on his, uh, on his shoulders, a sign of the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 3.17, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He affirms to us that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the one through which he will fulfill all of his purposes. In Luke 9.35, at his transfiguration, a voice also comes out of heaven and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the chosen one to represent us, to stand before God on our behalf. He's called our mediator. He's called our intercessor. He stands before God on our behalf, and, and God accepts him, and God affirms him. And not only does he stand before God on our behalf, but he, he, opens, up, he opens up access to God. This is why we have in Hebrews 4 that we can now come boldly before the throne of grace, right? And we can come boldly before the throne of grace. If you look at the preceding verses, as it talks about having a great high priest, who has entered into heaven, into the Holy of Holies once, opening up a way for us to come into his presence. The Father confirms this. His priesthood also reveals this. The Bible says in Hebrews 7 and verse 17, if you just want to turn one page to your left, the scripture tells us, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a direct quote from Psalm 110 and verse 4, and it is referring to Christ, that he, is, he has an eternal priesthood. Or I wrote it this way, and, and you can do whatever you want. It's an unending priesthood. So in other words, his representation is an eternal representation. We never have to worry that the one representing us now has fallen short. Okay, again, if you can picture it in your mind in comparison to the old covenant, you have these different priest generations as they die, another priest comes on the scene, and that priest now represents the people. And there were times where priests who represented the people, like Hophni and Phinehas, who did it in an inappropriate way. So you had to always be, you're always on guard, is this priest an acceptable priest? With Christ, you have an eternal priest. You have one who is always accepted by God, and who lives, endures, and intercedes on our behalf forever. He is an unending priesthood. He is a perfect priest as well. Hebrews 7 and verse 26 says, For it was good and fitting, or it was fitting, that we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sins, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus Christ was a perfect priest priest, and he was an eternal priest. He had no sins of his own. The, the idea of making a sacrifice for his own sins, like under the old covenant, was not necessary for Christ because he did not have his own sins. He was a perfect priest. He was also an authoritative priest. 
Hebrews 8 and verse 1 says that after he made his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is a position of power, a position of authority. Jesus Christ sat on the throne at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us in a place of authority. When you think about the intercessory work of Christ, when you think about his mediation on our behalf, when you think about and consider our access to God the Father for fellowship is based upon the work of Jesus Christ, it should eliminate those things that, that, that frustrate our fellowship with God. If you think about it with me this morning, our fellowship with God, if it is based upon our works, our goodness, our righteousness, our life will be full of worry, it'll be full of stress, it'll be full of frustration, because we know that we cannot enter into, God, into fellowship with God on our own merits. But if you believe this morning that Jesus Christ is the high priest, the perfect, eternal, righteous high priest that has never failed to intercede perfectly for his people, if you're basing your life and your communion with God on that reality, all of those things go away. Would you guys, would you guys not agree with me this morning that worry and stress and frustration are interferences for our fellowship with God? We think about the children of Israel murmuring and complaining all the time, and they didn't have communion, proper communion with God because of that. So what eliminates worry and stress and frustration? Mediation removes it. It's knowing who your mediator is. It's knowing who stands on your behalf. When you know who stands on your behalf, when you know who intercedes for you, when you know that you are entering based upon his merits, all of a sudden, all of your worries and stresses and frustrations are removed. So we have a superior priest who represents us before God. Because we have a superior priest who represents us before God, we are having our worries, our frustrations, our stresses removed. Right? Amen? Okay, is that true? If we're honest this morning, have we not walked in stress today? Walked in worry today? Walked in frustration today? We deal with this every day, folks. We've got to get a returned or restored focus on the, on the, on the priesthood of Christ, the representation of Christ, and, and walk in the full harmony with the Father all of the time, which has only happened when we have that fellowship. So we have a superior priest, number one. Number two is we have a superior place. He says this in, in, um, back in chapter number nine. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more, and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, and, I, and I want, I'm going to stop there. We'll get into the sacrifice here in a moment. But, but think with me for a moment. Where was this holy place that Christ entered? It was a heavenly place, right? We can, we can look at other portions of this section of Hebrews. We can look at the book of Revelation as well. We see the Lamb who is in heaven. So we see this superior place where this sacrifice is being made. It's being made in heaven where God the Father's true existence is. And we have the earthly temple where God manifested himself in, in, the, in different ways to, to mankind. But his true essence, the true glory of God, the true manifestation of God is in the temple in heaven. So, so here we have a more a superior place in which this all is taking place. And I just wrote down, if you're taking notes, I just wrote down reality next to that. You have representation, first of all. This is our representation of Christ. And number two, our reality, our reality is, our reality is, is heaven. Our reality is heaven. The Bible says in Colossians 3 and verse 2, set your affections on things, where? Set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Philippians 3 and verse 20 says, our citizenship is in, it doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven. 
The Bible tells us that we have been given, I believe it's Ephesians 1, that we have been given an inheritance, that we have been raised to be seated in heaven. Not we will be raised to be seated in heaven, but we have been raised to be seated in heaven. That is our, that is our position right now as being in Christ. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. We are in Christ and he is in us and therefore we are seated with him in heaven. The way that we enter into a con- con- continual, constant fellowship and relationship and harmony with God is by walking in a divine reality where what we see is not real to us, but what we don't see becomes our reality. That which is invisible and that which is spiritual becomes what we believe in more than what we can actually see. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, and then it gives us this contrast and says, and not by, and not by sight. They are opposing things. The events that were really taking place, we, we see the tabernacle in heaven, we see the holy place, we see all of the elements, we see the holy of holies, and we see this altar. All of that is a picture. All of that is, is simply meant to show us what is actually real. We would look at that and we would say, that's real, right? We would say, people would say, well, you know what? There's this tabernacle in heaven, and there's a mercy seat there, and there's a God that sits on that mercy seat, and All of these things are in hell. Well, that's not real. And then we would go to the tabernacle and, you know, and in the Holy Land experience, and we would say, this is real, right? Or we might take a trip to Jerusalem, or we might go to to the Middle East and say, man, this is real. No, that's not real. That's why we walk in frustration and not in harmony and fellowship with God, because what we see has become real and not what we don't see. It's when we embrace the fact that the temple in heaven and the sacrifice in heaven and the representation in heaven, that is what is real. And the God who is in heaven, that is what is real. All of this stress and worry and frustration over our condition becomes minimal when we realize what we're really looking forward to and striving for. This earthly tabernacle is simply a representation of something that is truly real in heaven. And this earthly tabernacle cannot compare with what is truly real in heaven. The Bible calls it an old tent, the old tent versus the new tent. And the, old, the idea of old, is, it's not necessarily referring to oldness in age. It's referring more to oldness in that it's something that's passing away. And newness is not referring to it being new How long has heaven been around, right? Is it new? You know what it's referring to? When you talk about this new covenant, this new, these new things, it's talking about the freshness of them. They're new. The mercies of the Lord are new. Does that mean that they weren't here yesterday? The mercies of the Lord are new. You know what that means? They're fresh. The new covenant is always fresh. It's always fresh. It's always life-giving. And the old covenant is is passing away. It's because it's meant to pass away. The priestly work of Christ is real. It is heavenly. And it is complete. It is done. And this, so we, we, we talked about, first of all, the proper representation removes worry, right? When we focus on who represents us before God, we don't have to worry anymore. Well, this one is the proper place, which gives us a new reality, and this eliminates us from the flesh. This eliminates us from the flesh. One of the biggest challenges that we have, again, we have worry interfering with our walk with God, but we also have flesh interfering with our walk with God, don't we? When we stop living in the flesh, the Bible says, the Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The Lord is literally saying that you cannot walk in the Spirit and fulfill the desires of the flesh. They're in opposition to each other. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other one. How do we overcome? How do we overcome the flesh? Well, I'm going to submit to you this morning that we overcome the flesh 
by living with the reality that the spiritual things are real and the fleshly things are just manifestation. They're just, they're, they're, they're not what we're striving for. They're not what we're living for. We need to get past the flesh and get into the realm where we're walking with the Lord because we're living in heavenly things. We're focused on divine things. We're focused on heavenly things. It eliminates the flesh. A divine focus, a heavenly focus, an eternal focus eliminates earthly things, fleshly things. Helps us to walk above them. In many ways, like Peter walking on the water, it was a moment in which he rose above the flesh. And the moment that Peter noticed that he was not capable of walking on the water, guess what happened? He was not capable of walking on the water, right? When he noticed he was not capable of walking on the water, he was not capable to walk on the water. But before that, when he had his focus on Christ and what Christ was doing, he was able to walk on the water. He had risen above the flesh. I believe that we live in a world today, we live in a culture today amongst Christians that we are so bound to the flesh that we do not see the supernatural. We do not expect the supernatural. We do not trust in the supernatural. We do not have enough faith to pray for the supernatural. Because what we live in is we live bound to what we can see and touch and what we feel. Listen, that is not what we're, as Christians, we're to rise above that. We're to walk on water. You say, you can't walk on water. With Jesus, you can. It's different. There is a supernatural nature to our God. There's something more to him. And as we believe in him and embrace him and pray to God for the supernatural, we pray to God for miracles. We pray to God to make his presence known amongst us. He will do it. He tells us in the book of Mark, I believe it's chapter number four, the last verse, he talks about not performing many miracles amongst his people. And he says, I did not perform many miracles because they did not believe. I don't believe he's just referring to that culture, but that's our culture. What we believe this morning is we believe what we can see. We believe what people tell us. We believe reports on the news. We believe, we believe all of these earthly things. And the Lord says, believe me. Embrace me, trust me, I have more to offer. I have more to give. We need to be, we need to be delivered from our flesh, folks. We need to be delivered from ourselves so that we can truly experience the power of God in our midst again. So we have a superior representative, our superior priest. We have a superior place, which is a heavenly place, which is the real place that we're going to. Number three, we have a superior payment. A superior payment. The Bible says, he goes on to say, not by means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, which were the Old Testament way in which the high priest would come into the, to the service of the Lord and enter into his presence. But, but here it says, but by means of his own blood. In other words, the high priest, who was Jesus Christ, put himself on the altar, laid himself down, paid the full penalty for mankind's sin, paid the full penalty based upon his own perfect blood. It says that he, um, it goes on to say that he presented himself before, uh, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. In other words, Christ Jesus offered himself perfectly to, to remove, to deal with the sins of mankind. Let me give you a few thoughts on what, is, what makes this sacrifice superior. Number one, it is a single sacrifice. It is mentioned over and over again in this text that Christ Jesus' sacrifice was a single sacrifice. The old covenant sacrifice was multiple sacrifices. The Lord Jesus Christ does not need to be sacrificed multiple times. He gave himself up one time to pay for the sins of, pay for all sins. And we want to remember this. That does not mean all people will be saved. What it means is, is there is not one sin that is so great and so heinous that Jesus Christ's blood is not sufficient to pay for. 
But I will tell you something this morning. If you're here amongst us and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, your salvation is, is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if you do not have faith in Christ, if you are not a follower of Christ, that does not that sacrifice of Christ is not imputed or is not credited or gifted to you. It's not just that the payment was made, it's that the payment has been gifted to us in the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. It was a superior payment because it was a single sacrifice made for sins forever and for all sins, meaning never, other, never another sacrifice is necessary. Hebrews 10 and verse 12 says this, But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is a single sacrifice. Jesus made one sacrifice to pay for all sins. And the only reason why he could do it was because he was perfect. Not only was it a single sacrifice, but what else makes it superior is that it was a human sacrifice. It was a human. Jesus Christ was a man. The old covenant was animals dying representatively, taking the place of the man for their sins. But never was an animal sacrifice um, respected or required by God to remove man's sins. The sacrifice in the Old Testament of the animals was never meant or capable of removing man's sins. It was necessary that there was a sacrifice of a man. This is why he tells us in, in Hebrews chapter number 10 that God prepared a body for him. The sacrifices of the animals were not capable of saving, but Christ Jesus was sent into this world, came into this world, and, and took upon a human body, became a, a man, became a fleshly individual, and gave himself up to pay the price for mankind's sins. It had to be a man who died. It had to be a perfect man, a sinless man. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet he was without sin. It was a human sacrifice. It was a perfect sacrifice. The only perfect sacrifice ever made 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was a sufficient sacrifice, meaning that it was one sacrifice for all sins for all eternity. And I want you to think about something with me this morning. When you think about eternity, does that mean it never has any end but it has a beginning? Or does eternity mean that there's no lines on either side? Eternity means there are no lines on either side. That means that the blood of Jesus Christ paid for my sins past, he paid for my sins present, and he paid for my sins in the future. There is no sin that I could commit that would not fall under this category of Jesus Christ paying for my sins eternally for all sins. One sacrifice, all sins, all eternity for those who have faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not for everyone. Don't miss that. Don't walk out of here this morning and say, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I'm good. But I don't have faith in him, and I don't believe in him, and I don't follow him. I, I just, I'm good. You're not good. He who has the Son has life. And John 3 says the way that we get the Son is by having faith in Him. It's a sufficient sacrifice. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation simply means this, that God's wrath was satisfied based upon the sacrifice of Christ. God's anger was satisfied based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want you to know this this morning. God's anger towards your sin was so severe. God's anger towards your sin was so severe that he did what he did to his own son. We could imagine maybe him doing it to somebody else, but God did what he did to his own son because that was how angry he was with mankind's sin. 
Isaiah 50, 53, it talks about he bore our iniquities, he bore our sins. And it says in verse number 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. It was pleasing to God, is what the Hebrew says. It was pleasing to God to crush him. It was satisfying to God to crush him. This is a picture that we cannot comprehend. We can't even fathom. If you have a son that you love and cherish, you can't can't fathom that you would get joy, you would get satisfaction from crushing him. But Jesus Christ was crushed by the Father and it brought satisfaction to him because the Father was a representation of the sins of all of mankind. He stood on that day thousands of years ago and he wore our garments and he represented our sins and he took our punishment for us. And his sacrifice was sufficient to appease the eternal wrath of God forever for all of those who will believe and place their faith in him. If you're here this morning and you haven't believed and placed your faith in Christ, man, listen to me, don't wait. His sacrifice is sufficient. His salvation is true. It is real. He will bring you directly into the throne room of God the Father, and God the Father will accept you based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. It's true. I'm not telling you a lie. I'm telling you what the Scripture says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. This is the truth. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is a superior sacrifice, a superior payment or ransom. And what does it eliminate? We've got eliminated worry, right? Eliminated worry. We've got eliminated flesh. We've got eliminated sin. Now sin is gone. When sin is gone, worry is gone, flesh is gone, communion with God is pretty good, right? All of them based upon whom? All of them based upon Christ. We want to have communion with God and fellowship with God, which we should, which he created us for. It will only come as we we see Christ fulfilling these things. The last thing this morning is back in our text. It is a superior product. Superior product meaning that what it accomplishes is superior to what the old covenant accomplished. The old covenant was capable of, of cleansing. The Bible says it was capable of cleansing the outside. Matter of fact, the, the, the way the text reads is it's not diminishing the power of the old covenant. It's saying the old covenant had this true power to, to cleanse the outside. But it says how much more powerful, if the old covenant could cleanse the outside, how much more powerful is the new covenant to cleanse the, to cleanse the inside, Right? What what matters before God? What does the Lord tell us in the Proverbs and in the Psalms that the Lord searches? Searches the heart. What matters before God is not what's on the outside. What matters before God is what's on the inside. This is why religiosity is so dangerous today because people come to church, people put money in the offering plate, people do a lot of the ceremonies and the processes that are associated with religion, but they're angry, they're bitter, They're hateful, they're discontent, they're full of pride, they're full of lust, they're full of greed. Do any of these things ring true with us? See, on the inside, it's dark. And like the Bible calls the Pharisees, Jesus called the Pharisees, you're you're white on the outside, but you're like dead men's bones on the inside. Do you know what the Lord cares about? The Lord cares about what's on the inside. And I will submit this to you. If the Lord changes your inside... He will change your outside. He will change your outside. You know, going to church and putting money in the offering plate and those types of things, they won't be a burden to you anymore. No one will have to convince you to do them. You won't have to wake up in the morning and think, do I go to church today? Do I give money to the Lord today? You won't have to do that because you've been changed on the inside. You'll be like jumping up and down for joy to be able to do those things. That's the difference, folks. The difference is, is the Old Testament could force you by fear to doing certain things because that fear drove you to obedience The New Testament and the New Covenant says that the Lord will change your heart so you'll no longer have to serve God by fear, but you'll now serve God because you're passionately in love with him. What do you want to serve God based on? Listen to what he says. He says, 
He says in uh, verse uh, 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, which comes directly from Numbers 19, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, man, we could have just dealt on those three words today, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is a superior product or superior results. Let me give you a few thoughts here, and we're going to close. He says that the product of the product of the new covenant is eternal redemption. He says that earlier in this verse, in verse number twelve. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Again, we talked about what eternal means. It means redeemed forever, right? Past, present, future, redeemed, always redeemed, eternally redeemed. Redemption means this. This Greek word for redemption is one of three Greek words that are translated in the, new, in the, in the Bible as redemption. This version of it implies freedom. It's the word that we get for being set free. Something has been set free, like a bird that's in a cage, and you come and you open up that gate, and all of a sudden that bird is free to fly. That's what this word means. The Bible says that God has purchased for us an eternal freedom. And then he tells us in Ephesians, I believe it's chapter number 5, to live in the freedom which God has purchased for you through Christ. The freedom, listen to me, the freedom that we have as Christians is what makes the new covenant superior When we live in bondage to the Old Covenant as New Covenant Christians, we do not magnify the object of the New Covenant. We minimize him. This is a being set free. It's an eternal being set free based upon a payment. The Bible says in Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. It's not only a freedom that we have, an eternal redemption, but it's an, etern- it's an internal purification. Purified conscience means the inside of us. It means peace, shamelessness, guiltlessness, joy. Really, the fruits of the Spirit could be exposed in this simple phrase that God clears our conscience. Anybody ever have a guilty conscience before? That's what he's saying is that it becomes clear. It becomes clean. You don't, have a, you don't walk around with a guilty conscience, which is a great defeater to the freedom that God has offered us. Internal purification. And then, at the end, it's not just internal purification and in eternal freedom, but it is total transformation. What does he say at the end? He says, so that you do not do dead works anymore, but now you serve the living God. That you move from dead works. And what does that mean? It just means that you move from purposelessness in life. You, you, you leave fleshly living. And now you live for the glory of God. Now you live for the magnificent Lord that you serve. You live to praise and honor Him. You live to exalt Him. Everything that you do is to be a reflection of Him. This is the transformation that the priest brings the high priest, the priest of Christ. He doesn't only cleanse us on the inside, but he cleanses us on the outside. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this very thing, that he who hath began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is the ultimate goal and end. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God not of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And it's not talking about ceremonial works. It's talking about Christ-like works. To walk through life in humility. To walk through life in selflessness. To walk through life with, with graciousness and mercifulness and love and kindness and deference. This is the good works that he has called us to. He says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
My last question for you this morning is simply this. How superior in our lives, based upon the fruit of the indwelling spirit, which is a part of the new covenant, how superior is the new covenant to us than the old covenant? Just simply based upon the fruits. If someone were to come up and were to evaluate each one of us and say, you know what, listen, we're going to do an evaluation. You're going to sit in this room or I'm going to watch you for this season of time or I've been watching you for this season of time. Would they say that your life is a greater manifestation of the old covenant or a greater manifestation of the new covenant? Do you walk in liberty and freedom or do you walk in bondage? Do you walk in internal sanctification or do you just walk in external sanctification? What has God done in your life? that is bigger than you. The new covenant is superior primarily for one reason, because of who fulfills everything in us, for us, and through us. And it is the through us that proves the for us, that proves the in us. Galatians 5, 19 and 22 says, the fruits of the Spirit are these, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, and there are others. Are these things prominent in us? Because the new covenant, what makes it great is that it changes you on the inside and manifests itself on the outside. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the change that you have rendered in our lives by your grace and through the sacrifice of your son through his representation, that you've really removed any reason for us not to walk fully in favor with you. You have removed our dead works. You have removed our worries. You have removed our sins. You have removed all of these things that would interfere with us having true intimate fellowship with you. Lord, help us to focus on Christ so that we can enjoy that fellowship. We can walk with you each day. Please bless us, Lord, as we leave this place. uh, Let us take your word with us to learn and to grow and to apply what we teach.